Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 2nd, 2019, and my guest is Anya Shortland, reader in political economy at King's College London. She is the author of Kidnap, Inside the Ransom Business from Oxford University Press, and her book is our topic for today. Anya, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much for inviting me. The very first sentence of this book really got my attention. Here it is. Every year, thousands of people are kidnapped to be ransomed back to their families, employers, or governments. End of quote. Uh, that's a stunning sentence for someone who's not uh, an expert in this area. And to be honest, my first thought was that's a little hard to believe. Thousands every year. Uh, is this true? And how would we know? Yes, it is true. Um, this is all around the world. And there are a large number of cultures in which kidnapping is very much part and parcel of what people do to be heard, for people to try and get a little bit of money. Almost all of those victims would be local people, so it would be a local on local kidnap. And uh, we know this because... uh, People sometimes report it, but usually we only find out the true scale of kidnappings and kidnappings for ransom when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission comes afterwards and say, well, what happened to your family? And then then we get the true picture of how many people actually get kidnapped. But there's no, uh, there's no official database anywhere. No, there isn't. Um, And the picture that we would get from the media is very, very biased towards the kidnaps that go wrong. So people who quietly resolve a kidnapping commercially through negotiation, etc., they don't want to advertise that they have paid money for their loved ones, that they were able to raise hundreds or thousands of dollars to get someone back. So they tend to be very shy about revealing this. This is a very remarkable book. Um, it It's a superb window into the economics and politics and culture, the sociology of, of a world of economic exchange that most of us mercifully know nothing about, not just a little. Most of what we know about kidnapping comes from movies or extraordinary cases that get dramatized um, in various ways. And what you're writing about is quite, I guess the word I would use is ordinary uh, in a certain dimension. How'd you do the research for this book? How did you uh, discover the intricacies of this, this market? It all started off for me with Somali piracy. And I was looking at this problem And I thought there were some things that were really puzzling. The first thing I found really puzzling is that you can take a multi-million dollar asset off the high seas and park it in plain view of the Somali coast, which is supposed to be anarchic. So I thought, well, how does that work? 
And then I watched people negotiating ransoms. And I thought, well, what is a fair price for a Greek super tank? Yeah. <laughs> and then I watched ransoms being dropped in the sea next to these ships. And I thought, how do they know the pirates are going to come off? Why did they always come off? Why didn't any ships get re-hijacked, given that they were slow and crewed by traumatized crew? They would have been the obvious target for anybody else, yet they were never touched. So there were all sorts of puzzles there that really intrigued me as an economist. How do you contract with a counterparty that you don't trust, you don't share any common ground with, you've all the worst suspicion about them. And if they cheat you, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And yet, there was a trade in hijacked ships, over dozens and then hundreds of ships. And somehow, it almost always went right for almost everybody. So that's really piqued my interest as a researcher. But then you get into the well, we, that that's a that's a uh, hijack that's hijacking would be the normal term for that. It's a form of kidnapping because uh, there's usually there's crew involved. But uh, when we think of a kidnap, we think of a a person walking along a, a street or driving along and being uh, abducted at gunpoint, and that's what much of your book is about. So how did you get into that? And then how did you find out about it? Yeah, so I was talking to the people who were resolving these hijacks for ransom. And I said, I'm really, really interested. Can you help me understand how this actually works? And I spent years asking this question until eventually they said, look, we really cannot talk about <laughs> Somali pirates because we cannot keep um, customer confidentiality if we start talking about Greek super tankers. But we may be able to help you if we talk about Petro in Mexico City or Rosa in Bogota, because once you've got a certain volume of business, it becomes much easier to not talk about specifics. And that's when my project really broadened out. And I realized that the same protocol for resolution and the same business ideas apply regardless of whether somebody gets taken in Colombia or in Somalia or in the Congo or in the Niger Delta. It, it always works the same way. So let, let's talk about the – you use the word um, tricky, which is an understatement. Right. So talk about why uh, kidnapping as an entrepreneurial activity – and of course – there are many motives people have for kidnapping. You, you mentioned them in the book. You talk about for political purposes, terrorism, uh, emotional needs to be noticed. But let's just talk about it as a business activity, which is a big part of it. Uh, why is it tricky? On the surface, you know, it seems pretty straightforward. You grab someone, you make a demand for money, you collect the money, and the person goes free. But each of those steps is unbelievably fraught with uncertainty and strangeness, uh, unlike a normal business transaction. So what are some of those issues? So somebody gets taken off the street, gets kidnapped, and the stakeholders 
the family, the firm, possibly the government, will have to come to some sort of commercial agreement with the kidnappers. And this agreement will be a one-off transaction, or at least that will be what everybody hopes. Um, as I said, there is no reason why they should trust the kidnapper. They haven't chosen to interact with the kidnapper. They know nothing about the kidnapper. And yet they will have to engage in a trade with them. They will have to find a price where the price could be anywhere between the maximum amount that the government might be prepared to pay to retrieve uh, a citizen and the minimum amount a street gang might be willing to settle for. And there might be several million, <laughs> a range of several million that, that to, to, to play with. And if you've decided and settled on a price somehow, you then have to make a transfer of money to the kidnappers, but your bank is not going to help you because it's a criminal transaction. So it will probably have to be done in cash. You have to get the cash to where it's needed. And that's going to be difficult if it's hundreds of thousands that you can't just take a suitcase and, and, and take through customs. But on the other hand, you don't necessarily want to alert the local authorities that thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars or pesos or nairas are going to be needed for this. Then you have to get it to the kidnappers, which also requires a leap of faith. I mean, what if they don't acknowledge payment? What if they the hostage isn't even alive anymore? Um, if you do get it to the kidnappers, then they don't necessarily have to acknowledge receipt. You can't prove that they've got it. It might have been intercepted. They might be very furious with you for not having done the right thing. And then they have to release the hostage. They have to choose to release a potential future witness against them. So why would they do that? So there are just so many things that can go wrong with this trade. You think by Murphy's law, this, this should just fail every time. But it, but and it doesn't. Yet, and yet, so this is, was a really surprising statistic. I interviewed a large number of people from within the community, but it sort of all came out that around 97.5% of hostages come back alive if you're insured for kidnap for ransom. Yeah, we'll talk about the insurance in a minute. Um, uh, listeners don't like to make fun of decimal points, but... I think 97 would be sufficient in that in that statistic, but that data point, given that there are probably number, many of them that do not get reported, uh, we don't have full information on. But it may be in those cases of insurance. Uh, I, I want to tell a story. I've, I've told it to listeners before. It's from my book in Adam Smith, where I stayed at a, uh, a cabin in uh, Big Sur, California, a beautiful spot, and I negotiated this deal at sort of the last minute, and I had no chance to send a check to the uh, owner of the cabin for the two nights we were going to be there. The one night it turned out, but I paid a two-night minimum because I was so eager to have a, a day uh, with my wife at, at Big Sur. And she said, oh, don't worry about the check, um, uh, sending me a check. Just when you leave, just put the money down in cash on the table, on the breakfast table, and my cleaning lady will, will pick it up. And, you know, that's an obvious classic problem of, of uh, principal agent 
trust. Just, it's just so many things can go wrong there. I could decide not to leave the full amount because I didn't think it was fair after th- thinking about it to pay for two nights when I'm only staying one. The cleaning lady could pocket the money. The landlady, uh, the owner, could claim she never got the money. But, of course, none of that happened. I left the cash on the table. My joke is I took a photo of it just in case these things <laughs> were were claimed, which, of course, a photo has no value whatsoever, but it made me feel better. And, you know, through culture and even though there was no repeat business, it was a one-off transaction, almost surely, uh, everything went fine and smoothly. But this kidnapping, these kidnapping interactions are nothing like that. And you never think about, as someone who hasn't thought about this issue before, about the challenge of, I mean, you might have seen it in a movie, but the idea of uh, the negotiation process, the idea of making sure the prisoner is alive. It's a classic uh, thing in a movie in, in um, um, where the hostage is shown holding a newspaper from a recent event, recent time. And as you point out, Photoshop is reducing the value of that as a piece of useful information. But all these things are, are, are incredibly uncertain. So, you know, one of the questions you have to ask is, especially since the many of the um, people involved in this have very different incentives and, and emotional stakes and all kinds of, of difficulties, why would it ever go smoothly? So what did you discover that helps understand why it goes so well. The only reason for this kind of trade to go smoothly is what economists call the shadow of the future. So people behave well this time around because it will help them in their business in future interactions. So when I started saying what a tricky trade this was, I started off by saying this is a one-off transaction and it would be for the family. But this will only work if the kidnapper understands that he's better off keeping the promises than breaking the promises. And that works because there must be a mechanism for information about good and bad behavior to be transmitted to future victims. So if you have a kidnapping gang working in a city, then local gossip will probably ensure that people know whether or not they can trust the kidnappers. However, how does that work for transnational hostages? How does that work for the tourist that gets picked up in a bar late at night? Um, How does that work for the aid worker? How does that work for the uh, expatriate? And that's where kidnap insurance comes in. It's the kidnap insurance and the fact that a very limited number of insurers, syndicates, underwrite kidnap for ransom, and they exchange information about trustworthy kidnappers and rogue kidnappers and they make sure that rogue kidnappers will find it very difficult to continue in business once they've broken their promises. And of course, as you point out, there are specialists uh, who negotiate, help pay the ransom 
and the insurance market is essentially coordinating that. It's a very strange market because I think you say this explicitly, although maybe not quite the way I'm going to say it. Without the insurance role, without a role for insurance companies and and the purchase of insurance to reduce the risk of kidnapping or at least the cost of it, it, the kidnapping might not happen because it would be much harder to extract money. So what the insurance does is you, you use the phrase, it orders the market. It it creates certain stabilities, is the way I would describe it, that otherwise would keep these transactions from happening. So there's a, a certain level of not micro-moral hazard, but I, you can think of it as macro-moral hazard. Just the, the phenomenon that the insurance market exists and that you can insure against kidnapping, which is really crazy, <laughs> uh, is what allows it to be an ongoing in certain dimension, an ongoing business activity. So let's start with uh, who buys insurance. I've traveled abroad a few times in my life. I have never bought kidnap insurance. I don't even buy that insurance against my flight being messed up that they offer me for, for $17 or $32. Uh, and they send you that scary thing that says, you realize now that if your flight is canceled or whatever, you're going to be in trouble and I just ignore it and go on, and I've always been okay. But I wonder how I would feel if it said, would you like to buy kidnap insurance for your time in Caracas and um, or wherever? And so uh, talk about how that – who insures? Who, who, who buys kidnap insurance? You're absolutely right, pointing to a moral hazard. Uh, the problem that people change their behavior because they are insured and they become uh, possibly more risk-seeking or less keen to minimize their risks if they know that uh, that there is insurance. So the condition of kidnap insurance is that you don't know about it. So it would be bought on your behalf by a responsible um, uh, firm, that is putting people in in harm's way. Yeah? So if a firm operates in what the industry calls complex and hostile territories, then they have the option of buying kidnap for ransom insurance for their employees, but they must not tell their employees that they have done so. I love that. I just, With just... the kidnap insurance also comes the responsibility to train people how to behave in the case of a kidnap and uh, to put in place all sorts of security protocols to really minimize the kidnapping, the, the, the probability of a kidnapping occurring. So plan A for an insurer is always that their customers do not get kidnapped. It is not in the insurer's interest to get into a ransom situation in the first place. So it's a very cleverly structured contract to make it very unlikely that a kidnapping occurs. And then there's plan B. If something goes wrong, it will almost always go right. We will make people come home in a reasonable amount of time. We're absolutely minimizing the dangers to them, but also minimizing the price and therefore the incentive for the kidnappers to target their customers, that type of hostage again. And what's plan C? 
well, very rarely needs to be uh, operated on, thankfully. And but yeah, I mean, the kidnap insurance will only work if uh, plan A works almost all of the time and plan, plan B mops up almost all of the rest. Um, some people die in captivity from existing medical conditions and some people try and escape. And uh, that's very, very dangerous. But, yeah. So let's go back to the it beginning. Really fails. Let's go back to the beginning of the insurance story. Um, it's a little bit strange because I, I don't really – the moral hazard, as you point out in the book, is is a little bit different than it is in other situations. I don't really have a very big incentive – to go into the bad parts of a city or the deserted stretches of highway uh, and putting myself at risk to be kidnapped because I say to myself, well, it's no big deal. I've got insurance. Um, so, Yes, but your employer might say, well, we'll travel down that road. We will engage in this activity because we're covered. Right. They might expose me to the risk without my... Uh, Full knowledge. Yes, but the other part, which I think is, which is also, in many ways, uh, more interesting to me, is that indeed the insurance company has a great deal of specialized knowledge that is not in the uh, that would be very expensive for any individual or for the firm to acquire. So by buying the insurance, I tap into that not as the firm, I tap into that knowledge, and of course. It is then in the insurance company's interest to make sure I act on that knowledge, and that's why you have the the tra- you talked about training programs. Uh, I assume there's I think you talk about this. There's regions you're not allowed to go into, uh, or your insurance is going to be voided. Correct? Indeed, yes. There are certain things that are uninsurable, and that's very much part of the product. So, certain things cannot be done unless. Whatever local community warlord, etc., sorts out the protection arrangements that they're willing to afford um, to foreigners uh, traveling through the area. And the insurance company obviously wants to, has to be acquiring information constantly about where the worst dangers are and, and so on. Uh, they want really they want real time uh, risk as as closely as they can acquire it uh, and as accurately as they can get it. But let's talk about a case where, despite those best efforts at prevention, uh, there's a there's a kidnapping. Are there are there certain? Is there any pattern to to what goes wrong and when someone does get abducted? If you know that somebody can kidnap you, if it's known there there is a warlord or a rebel group or an insurgent movement that has the power to kidnap people at will, then it's usually a good idea to pay the protection money so that they don't do it. So the kidnappers save themselves the hassle of actually kidnapping somebody and conducting a ransom negotiation. If there are enough people coming, then that works better. Taking the protection money works better than occasionally squeezing a hostage dry. And similarly for the firm, that wants to uh, do business in a particular territory, it's better not to put the employees at risk of kidnapping. So mostly we see kidnapping in areas where you don't know who to pay because there are multiple 
kidnapping gangs, multiple people laying claim to a territory, uh, or whether state moves in on drug cartels, for example. So that would be the Mexican story. If you don't know who, who governs, who rules a territory, then that gets difficult um, to organize protection. And that's where we see kidnapping. So that would be the pattern. You don't know who to pay for protection. Wouldn't that be a place you wouldn't want to do business in? So I guess the, <laughs> I guess it would have to be the case that when you're operating, if we see a business operating in an area where they don't know who to pay and they then engage in kidnapping insur- and then engage in acquiring kidnapping insurance, there must be enormous profits there for them to take that risk. Absolutely. And that's why mostly the companies that we see operating in these uh, hostile and complex territories are oil companies, mining companies, etc. It's not worth trying to manufacture cars or print <laughs> books or something like that. Well, you, you, tell the, so, <laughs> you tell the story of the, um, the guy who's trying to get some equipment uh, and he's told in, to, to, from point A to point B and he's told by um, the rebels that uh, he should, what is it, two, I think it was $2,000. He needed to pay $2,000. Is that the right? Do I have the right amount? That's right. What, yes. Until, so, and he decided that was exorbitant, and he decided he'd just get it, get it in on his own. Tell, tell what happened. Yes. Yeah, so this is someone who's told that there would be a roadblock if he wanted to get this goods from A to B. Um, he didn't want to pay. Basically, it wasn't about being exorbitant, but he just didn't want to pay. So he thought, "Well, I'm going to be clever about this. I'm going to hide the goods on a float. I'm going to put a band on it." And I'm going to let my float join a procession in honor of the Virgin Mary. And nobody will know what I'm taking these goods across this road. And uh, the fiddlers fiddled and the, uh, the, the, the pipers piped and everything was absolutely wonderful. And he arrived in the uh, destination with a big grin on his face. And then he realized his friend was missing. His friend has been kidnapped on the way. So... He knows exactly what's happened. Goes off to find the rebels in the jungle camp. This is uh, Colombia, so FARC. People know where they are. They get, he gets directed to the jungle camp and they basically tell him that he's been a very naughty boy and that he better go and talk to the accountant uh, to uh, arrange the fine for his uh, transgression and trying to evade this £2,000 uh, fee for passing the road. So he goes into a tent, he finds the accountant with uh, a database, um, two computers, and uh, the accountant looks at his firm's data and decides that the fine will be $10,000. And uh, a small tip would be helpful, and also they would um, like some prescription glasses and a few painkillers to be delivered alongside this ransom. So... This man agrees to everything, gets reunited with his friend. They drive out together. The FARC only keeps the friend's car, um, which they say will be required on FARC business, for a while at least. So he goes off home, goes into the next town, raises the ransom, gets the army to help him deliver the ransom and the painkillers and the um, uh, and the prescription glasses to 
it's uh, to, to, to the agreed spot. And then a few days later, his friend's car arrives as well. And I thought that was a really interesting story because while there is a kidnap at the heart of it, it very much sounded like a government enforcing a tax demand by making an arrest. And I think a lot of the time, that's how locals operate in these territories. They just pay whatever is necessary to do business. And also the rebel groups will tax business activity within their territory, but they won't tax it at such a rate that makes it unprofitable to engage in that business because they want future business. And therefore, they'll be cautious about how much they demand and how unpleasant that demand is made. But the friend was okay. The friend was released, right? And his car came back a few days later. Yeah, exactly. So basically everyone afterwards reverted to equilibrium behavior. Uh, The businessman now knew that he was not going to mess with a fuck. If they asked him for money, then they would get it. And they didn't hassle him or kidnap anybody else. And everything worked fine after that. So I think it's really interesting to to think of kidnapping as as, as part really of an intended protection relationship. I'll talk about that. By the way, FARC is an acronym for some rebel group in Colombia, right? That's right. So when the government... Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia... But how did the government get involved in helping make that delivery? Uh, they don't get along, right? The government and FARC, right? Aren't they enemies? Well, this is some time ago, and it was, I, I found it interesting. I wasn't able to get to the bottom of this, but it did seem to be some sort of live and let live arrangement at the very local level, something that the central government probably had no idea about. Right. Basically, if you leave people in peace out in the periphery, eventually they seem to come to cooperative solutions that allow people to bring investment goods from A to B and install them and, yeah, help the local population improve their lives. With a little slice for the rebels to finance their computers. and <laughs> Indeed. So let's talk about the negotiation because in, in the movie version – Usually, it goes something like, uh, we need $10 million or you'll never see your uh, loved one again. That people scramble around. They usually work in the movies, they're working with the police. Uh, they find $10 million. Uh, it's usually then marked. Uh, the, the, the criminals demand that it be unmarked, and there's always some secret way the police try to mark it so that they can trace the money or trace the, the criminals. The kidnappers, and then uh, the money gets paid in a suitcase usually, and sometimes the hostage release goes well, sometimes it doesn't. And we'll get to the that piece in a minute. But the negotiation itself is quite uh, fascinating. Talk about who does the negotiating in most of these situations. Uh, it's not the police, and it's not the loved ones. It's uh, directly. Uh, it's a consultant. So describe how that works. We talked about moral hazard before, and moral hazard really kicks in with kidnap for ransom. If uh, you think you are uh, 
um, insured for a million. And as an insured person, you want to make sure that you're treated as well as is possible and you divulge that information to the kidnappers and then they know how much they're how much money they're talking about. So that's why that information is kept from the insured person. What insurers want to happen is that the uh, kidnapped person, the hostage, tells their kidnapper, look, um, you've got to call my wife or you've got to call my husband or you've got to call my uncle because they're going to be responsible for getting me back. My firm that won't take responsibility for me. So what that achieves is that the credibly financially constrained party fronts the negotiation. And that makes it much easier to manage the kidnappers' expectations about how much money there is going to be got out of a negotiation. And the other thing that one really needs to think about is what the negotiation has to achieve is A, a price, but B, also it needs to work as a self-enforcing contract in that it's got to be in the kidnapper's best interest to release the hostage after they've got the money. So, not only do you have to negotiate a price that is acceptable on some level to the kidnapper, but you've got to find a price that convinces the kidnapper that they've got everything that they could possibly have got out of this. So how does that happen? The way this process has been described to me on on many occasions is one of squeezing the towel dry. So you start squeezing and a lot of water will run out of the towel. You keep squeezing and you keep squeezing harder and you give it another twist and another twist. But whatever you do, eventually nothing else comes out. Or rather the drips and drabs that come out are not quite worth holding on to the hostage for. If you know it's going to cost you $500 to hold on to the hostage for another week and the weekly increment has slowed down to, 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 to 300 or 200 or $100. It's just not worth holding on anymore. So you start off with a demand. That demand needs to be quite um, strongly resisted um, because it's not a price as we think of in a supermarket, but it's, it's a figure beyond somebody's wildest dreams of avarice. And if you say, yeah, that's fine, I'm quite happy to pay that, then they will just revise the demand upwards. Um, In a well-organized ransom negotiation, you will have increments on a rather low first offer, but these increments have really got to slow down. So mimicking this process of squeezing, squeezing the towel dry. The, um, the, the, the key to um, paying a morally and ethically responsible ransom is to manage the size of the towel that the kidnappers think they're squeezing. <laughs> and how can you possibly do that? Well, obviously, one way is to say, you know, my uncle's going to pay for this and 
uh, he's he doesn't have much money. He he's uh, you know he's got a low. You describe his job and describe how low paying it is. But when the kidnappers suspect that you have a a corporation behind you, uh, they start with a large number, as you say. And if you respond, do you respond with a, an incredibly low number? And who's responding? How's that? How's that work? And how does the insurance company get involved on the ground with that actual process? Well, somebody will take will officially take responsibility for for the negotiation, and sometimes that will be the company, and often it will be the family. The family or the company, whoever takes responsibility, makes all the decisions here. And they're making these decisions in the best interest of the hostage. But they will get advice and they will get coaching and that coaching and advice will be dispensed by a highly experienced um, specialist who's dealt with dozens and perhaps a hundred of this type of cases before. And who can steer the conversation and help the stakeholders understand that it's not in the best interest of the hostage to necessarily react um, positively, in a way, um, to horrible threats being made. That to coach them and help them and say, well, what, what is the right level? What would be the right increment, etc.? cetera? Um, the decisions are made by the stakeholder. All that can be offered is advice and guidance, but it is offered by very charismatic, very calm and very experienced people. And most people find that very helpful indeed. And you talk to some of those folks, I assume? Yes, I, I have. And uh, they're probably not like most people you talk to in the world. They're probably a little bit unusual, I assume. It takes a certain kind of person to find that uh, line of work appealing and to be good at it. Absolutely. Um, most of them are former elite military personnel. And yeah, they're very calm under pressure. They understand the criminal mindset. They're not easily flustered. You tell the story and, in the you tell the story in the book of the family that was what sent a photograph of a finger being chopped off with blood oh, everywhere. Yes. And uh, Oh absolutely what happened? Uh, uh, a, a, a horrid picture where 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 the family was was uh, had been threatened with mutilations, and then this picture arrives on the post. The very second um, where a finger is being chopped off, and the family, of course, goes into tailspin. And uh, the consultant says, "Well, hang on. If they've chopped off the finger, where is the finger? Why haven't they sent us the finger?" Spoken like an economist, of course, but uh, that that hostage did come back with 10 digits, if I remember correctly. Absolutely <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> what the kidnappers had done, they had a carefully uh, uh, prepared knife with, uh, with, with a little bit spared out. Um, so it could look like fingers were being chopped up, but they weren't. Because ultimately, it's not in the kidnappers' interest to mutilate hostages, to get into a situation where people think we need to mount a rescue, um, this hostage is lost, whatever is going to happen anyway. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting game of, of, of signaling where the stakeholders want to signal that they're patient and that they're, const that they're financially constrained. And the problem, if you, if you react 
to a threat like this, you say, oh, well, okay, well, I told you I've only got 50,000, but um, if you chop off a finger, I can go up to 100,000. Um, then you can guarantee that all 10 fingers are going to come off one after the other until you stop reacting in this way. Yeah, that's um, it's very good parenting advice, actually. We've just we've done a couple of programs recently on parenting, and I, um, I'll just let listeners draw their own conclusions there. Uh, before we go on, I, I want to ask you, because it's I don't— It's all about incentives, isn't it? And managing you- expectations in the shadow of the future, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, I don't want to miss this uh, chance to ask this question. There's—the um, book is— um, it's a little bit chilling uh, because, of course, it deals with a very unpleasant side of, of life that, fortunately, most of us haven't been exposed to. But it does give you pause about travel. Um, and I'm curious if having written the book and done all the research that you did and talked to all the people you did, if it had an impact on your uh, state of mind, your willingness to travel, your unease. You you talk about at one point in the book being, I think, in Naples and somebody reassuring you, oh, don't worry, the mafia makes everything safe here. Um, But uh, that was in the past. I'm curious where you are now. (laughs) There are certainly some places that I wouldn't want to travel anymore or never did want to travel. Um, I've done a lot of work on Somalia, but I mostly rely on uh, satellite images um, for Information. I'll talk to other people about ground truth. Um, to me, what really, what, what I found so super interesting was, was the ingenuity of, 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 of people and the lateral thinking of how you resolve these issues. How do you contract with these parties? How do you make a self-enforcing contract? Um, how do you find a structure that incentivizes people to give excellent service over and over again for people not to run with money when they could? And to me, it was a real revelation about how good markets are and particular the Lloyd's market is at, at, at creating institutions, at creating processes that deal with these completely impossible situations. And we often ask companies to do mutually exclusive things, like go and do business in complex and hostile territories so that we can drive cars, etc. Do that um, with taking care, fulfilling the duty of care towards their employees and, and, and yet not engaging on some level with whoever controls that territory. So we're asking really difficult questions of people and they come up with solutions and then, then we can wonder whether they're good solutions, but they're workable and I find that interesting. You mentioned Lloyd's. Now, Lloyd's plays an important role in the book. Lloyd's is a, for listeners who don't know, is a legendary insurance company in in the United Kingdom and if in England. If you had asked me what's special about them, I'd say, well, they're famous for insuring things that other people won't insure. They insure 
the knee of a basketball player or the the arm of a pitcher in baseball or uh, various esoteric things like that, that that might be quite expensive in terms of um, premium, premiums for the person who's insured. I knew nothing about this, of course, but you point out that they play a central role in uh, in the market. So talk about what they do and how that organizes the insurance market and then in turn affects the, the market for kidnapping. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Lloyd's is that it's not a company, it's a market in which companies come together to ensure special risks. So if you go to Lloyd's um, and want to buy kidnap insurance, you will approach a Lloyd's broker and within the market, there are 20 or so companies that are willing to underwrite the special risk. So here you have a club of companies that will compete for business with each other. But on the other hand, they're also close enough together and they're <laughs> geographically co-located in one big room, which allows them to come to agreements about what is and what isn't insurable, on what conditions it would be insurable. And that way, the customer gets a choice about what to insure exactly under what conditions and at what price. But on the other hand, these companies work well enough together to create that shadow of the future. The idea that if a pirate group in Somalia misbehaves and starts torturing uh, sailors, they will be out of business or their business will work really badly across the board because everyone will treat them much worse. But is it is it is there some reputational uh, force there that you know we've been talking about this as a one-off transaction, and you mentioned the the local knowledge that might spread about a, the unreliability of a kidnapper's promises. Do, do the insurance firms know who these people are that they're dealing with? When we get to the situation where the executive of an oil company is is abducted and or not an executive, but some relatively low-level person who's out on the street doing some actual work gets abducted. Does the insurance company's consultant actually know who they're dealing with on the other side? Is there really a shadow of the future for that individual? Why, to put it more gruesome, yes, that's exactly it, what it is. Well, it's not it, the insurer. It's it's a crisis responder who's retained by the insurer. But yes, the crisis responder will have the data, will have the experience, and will probably have met that kind of group or that group um, at some previous point. And they will have also the ability to find out all the information that they need that they they can get. Um, at the local level. So, yeah, they, they, they plug into the local knowledge and they have their own um, their own knowledge. And we know quite well from, from the interactions with, 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 with Somali pirates that people basically met each other again. So, 
yeah, it's reputations case. that stabilize this game, even even though the insurers themselves remain in the background. They make it clear that bad behavior will, will be punished. Because you'd think, to, to pick a gruesome example, that chopping off a finger as a threat and then carrying it out would be often an effective way to get a larger sum of money. And yet you suggest it rarely happens in these in these cases. You know, obviously there's an enormous range in, portrayed in the book of of street gangs who kidnap people, resolve it quickly for a few hundred dollars. But we're, also there are many, many cases of for tens of thousands of dollars. You'd think there'd be more of that kind of threat to by the kidnapper to find out what level of payment might be possible and to test That's right. There's, to test there's always the threat. There's always the threat. The question is, how do you respond to that threat? Do you respond to that threat by offering more money? Or do you respond to that threat by saying, well, if you're making that kind of threat, I can't talk to you. But why wouldn't they just carry it out without the threat and just say, to get credibility, why wouldn't they just chop off a finger to start with and say, you know, double the amount you've you've suggested you're going to pay, or we're not going to we're going to keep going? Why can't they ratchet it up? Some kidnappers do, but generally, where 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 is it going to end? There 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 is no obvious end, and except the death of the hostage, which is not in the kidnapper's interest. Yeah, I guess a fingerless hostage adds additional costs and challenges to keeping them alive and et cetera as well. Exactly. So so how, how do you provide the right incentive for the kidnapper to stop hurting the hostage? Well, you cannot reward bad behavior. Yeah, that's back, back to the parenting lesson. So let's, let's get to the, um, uh, the transfer of money and body alive, we hope. Uh, I, I never really thought enough about it. When you promise to drop off uh, a large sum of money in cash, besides the problem of showing that you really didn't mark it, uh, put marks on it to identify it, uh, you have to drop it somewhere, and then that puts the kidnappers at risk of being observed. And so you'd think this would be extremely difficult to coordinate. And then once the money's collected... The incentive to kill the hostage because the hostage has information about where the kidnappers are, or who they, what they look like, or something about the location is is also large. So, you know, in the movies, it's usually the handoffs. There's a a physical. That's usually where it all goes horribly wrong. Right. So, how does it ever go right? So, what? what how do they? How does this market work to make that happen correctly and safely? It's really interesting because different places find different solutions. So the problem here is, is, is of both sides potentially acting opportunistically here. So the stakeholders might turn up with the police and the kidnappers might kidnap whoever is sent with a ransom. And then you suddenly have two hostages yeah. and no money left. 
So it's a really, really tricky place um, to make that work. And there are different models that work in different circumstances. So one way of doing it was the, uh, the way that Somali um, hijack cases were resolved, where the money was dropped in canisters next to the ship, uh, making it very unlikely that uh, the ransom envoy would be kidnapped because it would be high up in the sky. Um, in other places, you find really interesting solutions where somebody says, my business is to provide a neutral territory where people can come with a ransom and people can come with hostages and I will protect that exchange. A middleman. You might also have a middleman who walks with a ransom from one to the other, but then you also have the problem of how do you keep, how do you keep the middleman true? So lots of different ways that people have overcome this. But again, it always works when there is a shadow of the future, when the pilot doesn't fly off with a ransom, when the middleman faithfully delivers the ransom and uh, the person with the shop in which the hostage and uh, the ransom envoy can meet doesn't go rogue and, uh, and, and, and gets hold of both. So it's, again, it's reputations. It's long-running exchanges where every time they happen, you take a cut. Um, that's how it works and that's when it works. But otherwise, it would be almost impossible to order. But that neutral land spot is a very clever idea because – as you say, you send in a middleman to be the collector, the deliverer of the money and the collector of the hostage. There's always this question of that person's reliability. But the land can't move, so there's a certain uh, collateral there uh, for honesty that, that you'd think that might help with. I don't know if that's a common solution, that a person offers a, a safe, the equivalent of a safe house for making these kind of transfers and, and, and then becomes a, a known um, arbiter of these kinds of uh, transactions? It happens often enough, but it can only happen where you, where you have a, uh, a, a rebel gang or, or a mafia or, or a cartel that can credibly exclude the police from their territory. So it works quite well in Mexico, used to work very well in Colombia. Um, it works in Pakistan and, and, and in Afghanistan. But yeah, if you've got a state that could swoop in on a transaction like this, then, then of course it doesn't work. But as you point out, essentially, not essentially, but it's often the case that the state is very weak in these situations. It's why there's kidnapping to a place. Exactly. It's why there's yes. a group there that has the, the opportunity to do these kind of things. I don't want to miss a uh, proverb that you passed along. Just an interesting cultural observation, and it reminded me of uh, uh, the interview I did with uh, Sam Quinones on his book Dreamland, which was about uh, the drug traffic uh, coming out of a particular province in Mexico. Uh, you talk about how, in, in at least Somali, where it's a little, um, a little more chaotic, maybe in some than some hard to believe, but even more chaotic than some of these other situations that these people who are successfully hijacking these ships and getting large sums of money don't get particularly rich. 
Uh, and you have this proverb, if you have a hundred goats and your cousin has none, you are a poor man. That there's a cultural expectation of sharing across a large group of people. Absolutely. And the way that the um, insurers make sure that a ransom doesn't trigger a new spate of kidnappings is to make sure that nobody gets rich. If people get rich from kidnapping, you cannot control the dynamics of the market. It will just get out of hand. So, yes, people sometimes get big ransoms, but they will have worked very, very hard for that money for a long period of time. They'll be sharing that ransom with a huge number of people. In the case of, uh, in Mexico, there were lots of, uh, if I remember correctly, when people would return from the United States, they would be expected that they would throw a large party, that they would do all kinds of things. to, And it was a status, an important status uh, creator for the people who had, who had made the money. Indeed, yes. But if you're going to hold somebody for six months, 12 months, 18 months, you will have to pay off the people in the vicinity as well. So the longer these things run, the more people expect a cut in the ransom and, 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 and the less profitable it is for the original kidnappers to, to be in that business. And by making ransoming difficult, by making kidnapping difficult, but particularly by making ransoming difficult, it puts kidnap for ransom outside sort of criminal capacities of the ordinary street gang. And they quite rationally decide they're better off at the cash point than trying to engage in, in, in a ransom negotiation. And, and that's ultimately what makes this predictable and insurable in the sense of people will buy this product at a price that's affordable for them and somewhat profitable for the insurer. So you say it near the end of the book, uh, remarkable quote, you say, quote, when I first studied economics, I was taught the markets work well if there is perfect competition, perfect information, and there are no externalities or public goods problems. I learned that if these conditions are not met, governments should intervene to correct the market failure or directly supply the goods that the market fails to deliver. The market for hostages and the market for kidnap insurance turns this textbook wisdom on its head. Close quote. Explain. Well, we've got the Lloyd's market for uh, kidnap insurance, which uh, is a market. But I wouldn't say it's one in which there is perfect competition because, after all, you only have three or four major providers, 20 altogether, all sitting in one room, all members of one club. Yes, they're competing, but it's a limited sort of competition and it's built on cooperation, on ordering the market jointly. Perfect information. You certainly do not want the kidnappers to have perfect information. They don't want to know. They better not know for how much people are insured, whether they are insured, etc. So the market works well, remains small enough to be insurable when the kidnappers don't know about insurance. 
don't know what people are worth, etc. Um, no externalities. Well, we've got big externalities here because if I jump ahead and pay a very large ransom for a loved one because I really couldn't contemplate celebrating my birthday without them, that creates massive externalities for the next person that walks down that street with the kidnappers just having bragged to all their friends about how much money they got. Um, so we need a system for containing these externalities. And um, yeah, the other thing, the state is definitely not the answer. That was the other thing that really came out of that research for me. Now, when governments come in with unlimited resources and very little time because they're under pressure from the media and uh, from from pressure groups and online fora, etc., they tend to mess up ransom negotiations big time. They tend to pay far too much very soft negotiators and because they truly are in these one-off scenarios where the Swiss government just hopes that the next hostage is going to be French and the Italians hope it's the Spanish that are going to pick up the tab next time because there is that they're missing that coordinating mechanism um, they tend to create big big problems in the market for hostages well, if I may use a, a particularly apropos um, metaphor, they don't have skin in the game. <laughs> uh, the, the the hostages really have skin in the game. Their families have skin in the game. And, of course, the insurance company and the consultants have skin in the game in a way that the government probably does it in that situation. But Well, certainly the bureaucrats who are catapulted into this horrible situation do not have the same sort of incentive structure that uh, a professional ransom negotiator um faces where if they mess up a ransom negotiation, if they pay too much, if they lose a hostage, um, if they don't get a clean finish, they, they're, really, they're really in trouble career-wise. It's career-limiting, whereas for a bureaucrat, paying too much, oh, well, you never had a chance anyway. So, <laughs> yes, so that's, that's the problem. And how do you demonstrate a budget constraint? How can the Spanish government say, well, three million and no more? We have no more than three million. Well, of course they do. <laughs> but how much? So it's much, much more difficult for a government to negotiate. And that's why some governments say, well, we just don't, because we know we can't. And one of the stranger things about this market, and it it's a nice illustration of your point about perfect information is I, I would call it, uh, you know, in textbook economics, the way I used to teach micro price theory, I used to emphasize the law of one price, that when prices vary uh, for the goods of the same quality, it, it creates an arbitrage opportunity. And so those prices tend to not literally be uniform in a market, but Close together, price dispersion is limited by arbitrage and the incentive for the participants on both sides to gather information. And here's a case where, on the surface, there, there's almost no information. There's no public, certainly, 
uh, transaction uh, information. Nobody knows what the last 25 kidnappings uh, earned the kidnappers in terms of ransom. And yet I had the feeling reading your book that there's effectively a market price. Is that an accurate for, for kidnap victims of a certain kind that the ransom does tend to hone in on a, a certain range of that's uh, it's imaginably predictable in advance. Is that correct? That is correct. That's ideally where we want to get that there is a going rate, that there is a modus operandi that somehow everyone can live with. So, for example, in the Niger Delta, uh, for years and years, um, all companies occasionally had pirates taking some people off their ships or off their platforms. They almost always returned within four to five days for $10,000. This was not a game in which there was careful scoping of how much these hostages were really worth. Um, there wasn't any need to drag this out. It was just understood that this was part of doing business in the uh, Niger Delta. And it kind of worked for everybody. It wasn't pleasant for the hostages when it happened, but it happened rarely enough for people not to feel that there was under threat, and as I said, it almost always went right. And this ten thousand dollars also really nicely judged because somebody who didn't have the benefit of insurance and the local worker, they would probably also be able to raise something in that in that region. So it was also wasn't a price that set everybody's minds whirring and thinking, oh, we should be getting into kidnapping. Kidnapping is so much better than driving taxis. It's, it's that kind of equilibrium that, 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 that is kind of ideal in areas like the Niger Delta where you just, we're, we're putting armed guards on, 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 on every little boat that is moving around these waterways will be prohibitively expensive. So in, in, in a way, you've got an equilibrium kidnapping situation there or had for many years. And at the moment, it's, it's, it's more troublesome and upset. But, uh, but yeah, there, there was an understanding how this market would work and how people would behave on both sides. And it has a sort of theatricality about it. Well... One of my favorite movies is uh, Midnight Run. I'd say it's might be my it's in my top ten for just pure entertainment. I think I've probably seen it three, maybe four times. Uh, it's Robert De Niro and uh, Charles Grodin, and uh, it's just a fantastically entertaining movie. And uh, there are a number of kidnapping uh, moments in that movie, uh, and part of the it's it's actually a comedy. Uh, although there's some nice emotional moments in it as well. But a lot of the comedy comes from the stupidity of the kidnappers uh, or the players generally. They make threats that turn out badly or they carry out threats that turn out badly or they just do things that are just revealing information that turns out to harm their case. Uh, all the participants have this issue, but it's particularly blatant one and when a kidnapper takes a photograph of one of the victims 
holding a newspaper. And in the background, you can see the name of the motel on the towels. <laughs> uh, it's a very small <laughs> spoiler. I apologize for that if you haven't seen the movie. But it's, it's, that's moment number, I'd say, 50 in, in delightful moments in the movie. But uh, the movie is it, 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 movie's entertaining and it's actually at times moving because of the mix of um, human frailty with greed and um, pure self-interest and opportunism all mixing together. And there's some shadow of the future work in there too. But when I read a book like yours, which is predicated, the analysis is effectively predicated on what I would call the homo economicus model that, that people are rational. Now you can see it in the book that hostages die, that things go wrong, it doesn't always work smoothly. Negotiators make, on both sides make mistakes. Information gets revealed that changes things and causes things to drag on. You're not, you're not, this is not a book about uh, how models work perfectly. What's impressive about the book is that it shows that they work at all. And I'm just, let's close with, with your thoughts on this mix of rationality versus emotion. There's an enormous amount of fear on all sides of this these transactions. There's uh, a lot of adrenaline pumping at various times. Uh, and as you were talking to the people involved in these in these world in this world, and you're thinking about them at most of the time as quote rational and worried about that shadow of the future, you're also aware, I'm sure, that sometimes people just do things that aren't in their self-interest or that are just emotionally driven and turn out to be mistakes. Uh, how do you think about that mix as you wrote the book and, and in general? In the book, the uh, negotiators, the professional negotiators, have a very clear key position in the system, and that is because they see things in a very, very rational manner. And they need to help people who are in a completely different case or in a funk and in a panic and in a state of emotional turmoil to make rational decisions. And the interesting thing is that through the charisma that they have and through the experience that they have and the persona that they project, they not only help the families make the right decisions, but they also help the kidnappers see things through a more rational perspective. And they educate them and say, yes, we don't want you to hurt Uncle Ted. Um, and you're not going to get anything out of hurting Uncle Ted. And they just, they just help the kidnappers see how that strategy is not going to be be helpful. I mean, sometimes you have very emotional kidnappers, sometimes you have stupid kidnappers. But stupid kidnappers will reveal information and ultimately is in the insurer's interest to eliminate stupid kidnappers. Well, eliminate kidnappers where possible. But if you have stupid kidnappers who make mistakes, you can remove them from the market by dropping some hints to the police. So Insurers don't necessarily accept a beautiful long-run relationship with kidnappers. If kidnappers make mistakes, then they're out of business. 
that's the um, that's not some Taleb's point actually about uh, moral hazard incentives and and skin in the game. That if you have skin in the game, even if you don't pay attention to the incentive effects of skin in the game, you eventually will do things that are stupid enough that you'll eliminate yourself from the game. So even if you're not if you're not paying attention and and you avoid uh, doing the thing that's in your self-interest because you're not smart or blind or whatever, uh, you will be out of the game anyway. It's a deep insight, and it's it's this is just a nice application of it. So you're saying that if the way I t- I'm taking what you just said is that if the shadow of the future doesn't get your attention, uh, you're going to find that it should have, but it'll be too late because you'll be exactly. Uh, Really beautifully put. I don't know if that's true in this case. You know, his example is if you're, you know, if you're you're a bad pilot, you crash your plane and you don't pay attention. You know, if you get drunk and 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 fly drunk, you'll you're going to be out of the game sooner than later, uh, even if you're not paying attention. But um, I don't know. I don't know if there's much evidence we could gather to show that that dumb kidnappers or overly ambitious kidnappers are uh, removed from the process. Uh, what do you think? Well, they are because the insurers or the, the, the crisis responders do work with the local police um, and with the SAS if necessary. So what's, we have what's the, SAS? The, uh, the special air service, um, the Navy SEALs equivalent, the people who go in and do rescues. So if you have a kidnapping gang that puts hostages' lives into jeopardy, then there is no commercial resolution, then there will be a rescue attempt. But if you know that commercial resolution will work, then you're not going to put the uh, soldiers or the hostages' life at risk by sending in a rescue team. It's only when you know these are horrendously violent, murderous people anyway you got a better chance of succeeding with a rescue operation than with a commercial resolution that you send them in. The other thing that I found really interesting was the market for negotiators, how um, competitive that is, and how negotiators that are not good at what they're doing very, very quickly find themselves unable to get a job in the industry, either as a freelancer and certainly not on, on, on a permanent salary. So there we see the incentives working very, very quickly, very clearly that you get it wrong once, you've got a problem, you get it wrong twice, you're out. Yeah, again, that's the, uh, I don't know if I made it clear, but the skin in the game part of this is that if there's skin in the game, whether it works to affect your expectations or not, it's going to eventually have the, uh, the effect of um, of keeping bad things from happening. Uh, they might happen once, but they're not going to happen often. They won't persist. So people can make mistakes. Um, they can make bad decisions, but when they're skin in the game, uh, the damage is, is limited. Not that it might not be horrific damage in this story. Right? One bad decision here is can lead to death. It's a must be an incredibly intense um, market to be in on a regular it basis. Is, it is a hugely stressful job, and for professional negotiators, this equilibrium analysis, where they were basically this is 
a fairly rational market, things mostly go right. That's not what it looks like from the business end of negotiating ransoms, where where you have to cope with the drama, you have to cope with with, with people being absolutely terrified. Um, You might have to deal with a large number of people, so not just a nuclear family of of, of three or four people, but maybe a family, an extended family of, of, of 50 very opinionated people. And perhaps you also have to hold together a company and multiple families at the same time. So, yes, it's a hugely, hugely stressful job um, that uh, I certainly could not do myself, that uh, uh, I watch with, 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 with great admiration. But I come back to this 97.5% of the time it goes right. Something that should never go right by Murphy's Law, they somehow make it happen. So I've I've focused on the stories where, where it goes right in the end, but if you're actually doing it, it doesn't. It's 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 always a victory snatched from the jaws of a horrendous defeat, and um, that's the life that these people live. My guest today has been Anya Shortland. Her book is Kidnapped. Anya, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, thank you for your brilliant questions. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>